0: On this episode, I interviewed Adam Walker, who is a physio with a special interest in ACLs and is currently pre- completing a PhD upon this topic. The main The main topics we talked about first off was Adam's current work he's done, um, the scoping review he published, and its major findings, kind of looking at more of not necessarily the specific sets and reps of ACLs, but what the best way was to structure consistent... Rehab in order to make sure the whole entire process is completed and the importance of that. We then went into a little bit more about the injury risk factors for females and whether it was more of a biomechanical thing or it's more of just the motor learning and the low exposure to resistance training for females. Then we went into kind of more his program and how he has his thing set up. We talked about his his different strength programs he has with his activation plyometric and strength aspects, and we went into each of those. And then we talked about the the more of the conditioning and field-based side, which he mentions isn't run as much as, as it probably should be in ACLs. We talked about just linear speed, shuffling, cutting, and different agility type technique points that should really be focused upon. So, It's a great episode on everything ACL, so here it is. Welcome to No Weak Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date, evidence-based content and knowledge through your life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab professionals, or anyone in the sports performance or sports medicine industry. So please, have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Nellie no Links. I'm your host, Patrick Wood, and today I have on Adam Walker, who is a physio with a special interest in ACLs and currently working on his PhD um, within that realm. So appreciate you being on, Adam. Obviously, today's topic is mainly going to be about ACLs, but first off, if you just want to give a little bit of uh, background on you, kind of your uh, past education, past positions, current position, and then maybe a little bit about your PhD, and then we'll get more into that.
1: There, yeah, thanks very much, Patrick, for having me. First off, it's obviously really good to be here. Uh, hopefully, we can uh, provide a little bit of insight to a few people. But I guess to start off with, I grew up in in Hobart, in Tasmania. Hopefully, a few people know where that was. And then I, after I, I finished school, I went straight into an exercise science degree at the University of University of Tasmania. Uh, as part of that. Uh, my final placement there was within the strength and conditioning department at the AFL Tasmania so I guess that's where I first got my first kind of insight into more strength and conditioning side of things versus the the fitness realm and obviously you grow up as a teenager more in that kind of fitness aesthetic world so that was the first insight there then came out of university um, just worked as a personal trainer in the in the local gym for about a year which is really good I had a couple of good mentors there that started to introduced me to some to some people in the I guess the wider field to that really started to pick an interest in that side of things so you know they got me to read blogs like you know Mike Boyle and Charles Poliquin and Dan John and and Eric Cressy and all those kind of guys which really helped early on I guess just to get a bit of background knowledge behind me before after a year just moving on to do my uh, doctor of physiotherapy degree at Bourne University here on the on the Gold Coast. So f- finished up that, then was um, really blessed to get a job in a local private practice here, Pindara Physiotherapy, and worked there across another couple of clinics as well and had some good mentors in, in Richard and Hardy that have been able to guide me along over the first uh, few years. Uh, and then, I guess, from there, we got a couple of years into that and something that Richard had been thinking about for, for a long time is in we didn't really... Service our ACL patients that well within the current private practice kind of model. So that kind of was the, the catalyst for that next stage of my my career, where was again really really lucky to get hooked up with uh, Alex Rigby, who's the who's the current high performance manager at the at the Gold Coast Suns, uh, and uh, he and I started a, a a small business together called Performance GC, where largely we're now um, providing uh, mainly kind of mid through to late stage ACL rehabilitation to community, amateur level athletes. So that's where it all started. Um, well, I guess the final point uh, the puzzle was then about a couple of years into that, I was obviously really enjoying the, the topic of ACLs and then um, got enrolled in, in the Bonn University there to start my PhD on how can we improve outcomes after ACL reconstruction.
0: Yeah, Definitely. And I guess that'll become maybe our first topic there with your with your PhD. So if we want to start off, you just published a, a scoping review recently. Um, so if you just maybe want to talk kind of the basis of um, the purpose of that, and then we can kind of go into more questions um, on the specifics of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. the The scoping review was the first study of my PhD, uh, and as I just mentioned before, it kind of stemmed from the clinic based environment where we will get we'll get athletes in um, and they kind of we go all right in the clinic through to about usually about five or six months and then we find that people just tended to just fall to the to the wayside whether that was led by a little bit by the, the patient with certain constraints that they've got in terms of um, uh, costs or they uh, dwindling motivation they're starting to get to the point where they're starting to regain a feeling of normality and it's a little bit harder to in day-to-day life to determine whether they have the have good function or, or the deficits that they that they have and then probably a lack of a lack of knowledge in terms of what they actually need to do to make a successful return to sport so the first stage of the the phd was completing that scoping review to try and get an insight into the factors that do affect a person's ability to adhere and complete a full course of rehabilitation uh, and we wanted to look at, at things like what uh, frequency of physio seemed to be most appropriate. How long should they complete formal rehabilitation for? And then some of those contextual factors that that may influence their their ability to complete the rehab in the first place.
0: Yeah. Okay. And then with with the review, what were the main findings um, that you f- that you could kind of conclude from the scoping review? Yeah. The the main f-
1: the big one is probably that we know that completing rehabilitation, as in doing a, a duration that is of at least nine, hopefully up to 12 months of supervised rehabilitation, you have a much greater likelihood of returning to sport and returning to sport with greater function. Because we can we can get into that, that bucket there where people, where they drop off at, at six months, they either never return to sport because they're worried about re-injury, they don't feel like their leg's never the same, or they do return to sport and end up re-injuring themselves or have other injuries because of the deficits that still remain after the injury in the first place. So if people did go through to the end and they completed good supervised rehab, then they then they generally had better outcomes, were a higher rate of return to sport and um, better uh, kind of physical function on, on different kind of strength and power measures as well. In terms of frequency, it was kind of interesting. There was no real consensus and... Some of the the evidence around kind of higher frequency versus lower frequency was a little bit hard to determine because we weren't really sure what kind of function they were getting to at the end of those programs. But the they seem to be about on par at the moment, whether you were kind of high frequency um, or lower frequency seeing your seeing your physio. That, but the majority of the re, the research was in that first kind of five to six months of of rehab where we're really finding that the most important part of rehab is actually from six to 12 months. So there's a bit more work to be done in that space.
0: Okay. So would you say that the biggest finding of yours was that, the importance of actually completing the full rehab not just dropping off early whereas the frequency is still to be still to be determined so that's kind of um, i guess the goal of performance you see that six to kind of 12 month to make sure um, you can kind of develop the best possible program for the athletes to try and get back to the highest level um, so they can return to sport performance yeah exactly particularly with the community and amateur level
1: athletes or we get a lot of younger athletes in you know teenagers that obviously don't have access to the fully uh, supervised uh, rehab environments that you might get within some sporting team environments. And if we can remove as many of the barriers to them completing their rehab as possible, but also provide a training environment that trains them at a sufficient enough intensity and targeting the actual deficits that are relevant for an ACL reconstruction, then our aim is to provide them with the best chance to return to sport, both from a physical perspective, but also a mental perspective as well
0: okay what, what would you say i guess the biggest uh barriers and mistakes are um with just the the model of you know like you said the initial what, what you guys are trying to fix so, so like the general physio model where they you know maybe come in once there's once every so often and then obviously will drop off that's a barrier or that's um, a mistake of it of dropping off and not completing it but are there any other the biggest barriers you determine with these review or the biggest mistakes you often see that Prevent people from getting to where they want to go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. the The therapist plays a very large role. Whoever, when they have the the a really good relationship with their therapist, that's highly knowledgeable, then they they tend to complete rehab to a greater degree. Often, in, particularly in the private practice environment here in Australia, where it's the physio and some of the research that I'm doing now at the moment in terms of interviewing ACL uh, patients who have had an ACL reconstruction, they they're saying that the physio led most of when they got seen and what what they were to do. So you'd almost get to, it was just standard practice for physios to say, all right, we'll see you twice a week during the first month or first two weeks, and then we'll see you once a week for the next month, and then it gradually goes to uh, once every two weeks, then once a month. And they're only catching up with their physio every once every month, every six weeks at that end stage, which if that's the most important stage and if that's going to what make the difference to them returning to sport or not, getting re-injured or not, and having the confidence to return to sport or not, then, then the physio has got a very large role to play. So us as clinicians do have a big role. But the good thing is us as clinicians, then we also have the power to overcome some of the other barriers. So providing them with an environment that is uh, tailored to their needs in terms of um, developing the physical competencies, but also probably the biggest fear that is coming th- the biggest factor that's coming through in the research is fear of re-injury and just kinesiophobia and people being scared to return back to sport and it's with our rehab and progressive rehab that is the best way to to overcome that
0: mm, so like with you're saying the kind of having a relationship to one give them confidence just in your research reassurance as, as a therapist but also the exercises and the progressions you do um, physically correct yep
1: yeah. So if we can expose them to situations that obviously just challenge them a little bit from a from a fear avoidance perspective, then they'll grow into that. And if you're in a supervised environment, obviously it provides them with a lot more confidence that they can do it. And the other good thing about obviously the things that we do in a group environment that having other athletes around them they can share the journey with with the other athletes that gives them a bit of confidence and a, and a bit of uh interaction with others that can get a bit of banter and a bit of competitive kind of spirit going that can really lift them up um much further than they would do otherwise
0: okay so the the uh programs you guys are running or the the sessions you guys are running with performance do you see are obviously giving that person the um more supervised training the more frequency and uh what would you say though are ways you can get people to kind of adhere to that or ways you talk you know talk to patients that maybe they don't have this situation or or different um things you can think of for opportunities that people can find a way to get supervision to still adhere to it and complete the full acl rehab
1: yeah it's it's definitely tough depending on what your environment you're in for sure i mean if You can lead that yourself easily enough particularly if there's not as many financial restraints then it's if you can find the appropriate strength conditioning professional or or knowledgeable physiotherapist particularly regarding the late stage stuff then then if you can push that a bit then you can get the the care that you need uh providing as much from a a physio you've got to try and provide them with just ongoing supportive information the the patients are definitely lacking that they don't want to be heaps of stuff dumped on them but they need that constant reassurance and you can't just say stuff once that you know you've got to reinforce. all right we've got to get through this next phase these are the you know the simple kind of goal setting um, that we should all be doing in clinical practice these are the goals that we're trying to hit these are the tests that we're trying to hit all right we're looking into the future look if we want to return to sport at the start of the next pre-season then these are the things that we need to keep working on and if you're if you can provide that just continued support from a goal-setting perspective, but also the continued support from an information perspective and letting them know that this is why you need to be doing these things and these are the risks if you don't, then people will come on uh, and generally get along a lot better than they potentially would
0: otherwise. Okay. Do you, do you find that athletes commonly underestimate the amount of work that it takes to put in to get back to a high level or get back to their former level. And then if so, what are ways you kind of explain that or help them through that? It's uh,
1: in the, the last group of interviews I did, that was one of the questions we asked them. And most people now know that it's going to take 12, uh, 12 months. Like it's pretty much being drilled in, in the media. We see um, people get injured in the AFL. Oh, they're going to be out for 12 months All on in the netball, um, competitions they're going to be out for 12 months so informing them that that's how long it's going to take isn't doesn't tend to be the issue it's like you said it's they're not aware and the comments that we received was that they were not aware of actually how much work that would actually entail to get to the point where you could get back so that was the that's the big issue and that's what you're right it's like how do you how do you um get them to be aware that it's not just okay to i'm just going to wait 12 months and i'll go back and the ligament will be healed (laughs) enough and should be good as gold but unfortunately we know it comes It's there's a lot more in it than than that but um the i think the early phases is you've got a really good opportunity to set that up so unless it's set up from the from the start and if People are craving a bit of a program, essentially. They want to know what's going to entail, and they want to know what's ahead of them. So we can't just go through the first few stages and, and say, you know, this is what we're doing now. We're going through this, and they're not really sure what's to come. If you can set it up from day dot, then obviously it's reinforced throughout the whole thing. Uh, they're a lot more likely to hopefully make it to the end with you.
0: Yeah, definitely. I guess with uh, the, your other studies you're doing with your PhD, I mean, they're... You have your scope and review published, but you have other ones that you're still working on that haven't been published yet. Do you have any other uh, information or results that you've found so far that you've found surprising or helpful um, when it comes to ACLs? I think
1: a lot of the results that we've seen so far has reinforced what we were seeing in the clinic, which is obviously really really reassuring. So I, I think the main thing for people is they have to think about how are we... How are you going to provide them with the best environment so that they can actually achieve the return to sport goals? So it's basically all the this, all this stuff that we've kind of been, we've been touching on. That if uh, it's not enough just to set them a program in the, in the gym um, or on the, on the field and expect them to go away and do it at a sufficient enough intensity and for long enough to to reach their goals, so that's where I find like that increased input, particularly towards the end of stages, just makes a massive difference.
0: Mm, So a lot of research is done on the best, you know, I I guess progression and so on, or exercises and time frames and all that stuff. But yours is more on how to set that athlete up to be able to achieve these and putting them putting them in an environment that allows them to. Uh, be as motivated and challenge himself as much as they can to try and get back not necessarily like i said the sets reps and so on yeah
1: absolutely right that's where yeah, you nailed it there basically we've there's been so so much research on what needs to be done and the tests that uh they need to pass before they can return back to sport and obviously there's still a lot of research to be done in that space but there's no point having the best program in the world if nobody's going to do it so that's the issues that we come across in the in the clinic and at the community and, and amateur levels that with everybody being time poor and there potentially not being the resources available if we can provide that environment just exactly as you're just saying then we can give them the best chance of not only returning to sport but returning to sport and not having we want them to be as good or better an athlete at the same or higher level obviously no re-injury No ongoing pain because so many athletes, particularly in the interviews that we've just done, they might get back to sport, but their knee just never feels the same. And they have ongoing pain, they have patellofemoral pain, or they get recurrent hamstring strains um, or quad strains. They're having other injuries because of the ACL injury in the first place. So we've got to think about ongoing pain and and other injuries as well. So if they can be a better athlete, return to sport, and have no ongoing pain and and no re-injury, then that's the that's the end game
0: mm. it, kind of continuing on to, from the am, amateur athlete as you're speaking on i guess what are some of the biggest things that you've found that you kind of you've modified to fit them to make it be more the most practical that might have been a little bit straight away from i guess what the gold standard and everyone wants if you've if you have found anything working with all your clients and your athletes I think
1: it, it comes down to a lot of the fundamentals, which I know a, a few other guests, like Geordie and 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 those guys, have talked about. Is you've got a you get an ACL uh, reconstruction patient and they're they're at the they're in the basement, which is um, which is a Tim Gabbett kind of reference, where he's trying to get him from the basement back up to baseline or the floor and then back up to the ceiling. The like they're in the well down in the basement, so a lot of the stuff that we're doing isn't actually that complicated or fancy or anything we still got to hit the key movement patterns get them strong work on the individual kind of deficits so there's nothing that's kind of revolutionary there but if you can provide the environment and get the fundamentals right under supervision um, then they go a long way to getting there in the end i guess another big thing is probably that's really underdone is the field-based rehab side of things i think a lot of people do some work in the gym It's very, very few people that will actually go and do stuff on the field in terms of agility, change direction, and there is a massive technical component to that. And the the benefits of having some kind of supervision there to to aid with that technical kind of competency um, is massive because a lot of people just don't even set foot on a field and doing agility and kind of change of direction work and reactive stuff and until the very end until they're pretty much going back to training
0: mm, so you'd, you'd recommend instead of you know you you might have all these criteria in the base and all these or in the gym and all these benchmarks to hit there with strength and so on but until they really get into the specific agility and running and all that and even kind of a little bit more uncontrolled but not quite practice yet or training then you, you think that's a major benefit and something that you need to do as well Yeah, that's a huge benefit. We don't really have the field-based
1: tests there at the moment. So a lot of it is kind of clinically based where if you work with a lot of ACL athletes or if you work with people that do a lot of change directions based sports, you do get to recognise what is good and bad technique. And we don't really have the clinical measures or the the tests to kind of quantify that at the moment. The other uh, thing is that most people do not regain their confidence to return back to sport and overcome the fear of re-injuring and... Uh, kinesiophobia until they step onto the field and do change direction and rigid, uh, reactive work and competitive stuff so even though they might be getting really strong in the gym a lot of the time they still haven't gained their confidence back because it's just obviously it's a completely different environment and it's usually the environments where they injured it in the first place so that naturally brings back a lot of memories for the athletes
0: okay so definitely making sure to get them on there because even if they're as strong as they possibly can be as strong as they were beforehand and everything checks out in the gym that mental side of things is getting them back into into the field stuff yeah we see it
1: all the time we
0: when we do our
1: kind of a lot of testing we do and there has been research that's shown it as well that we can have someone that's supremely physically fit but lacking confidence um, and has a high fear of re-injury which is impacting their ability to return back to their sport and you can have someone the complete opposite as well so that they can be quite have physically still have some large deficits from side to side um, but feel pretty confident just because it's that kind of their kind of demeanor so they can the the psychological and the physical side of things can often be disconnected so it's important thing to keep in mind
0: okay okay um, any last, I guess, major tips on how to kind of conduct the, the rehab instead of the specifics, which we'll probably get into a little bit more in the second half of the episode. I guess, what are your big main points for that um, that we that we've kind of talked about briefly?
1: Yeah, I think take into the individual athlete's circumstances. Set them up early in terms of what they're going to have to do towards the end. Inform them of the physical benchmarks that they have to meet to make a return to sport and not just having it as that kind of time-based criteria. And then uh, figure out a way within your unique environment that you practice where it provides the athlete with the best opportunity to adhere and comply to the rehab so that they can complete it through through to the end.
0: Perfect. So I guess the first thing I want to talk about with more of the specifics of ACL talk is I know you had um, you've been, had previous you've been working previous seasons with Bonds Bond Women's AFL team and especially with AFL in these past few years what is always been a thing obviously with the female athletes is um, they have a higher risk of ACLs so I guess maybe talk about of, of getting ACL uh, injury so I guess maybe talk about um, these risk factors and things you do to kind of I guess, help decrease the risk or things you've done in the past to either screen or work on technique-wise or strengthening-wise and so on?
1: It's Particularly, obviously, in Australia, it's a massively growing space that just the women's sport in general, whether it's AFL or, or rugby sevens or even um, 15s rugby, and uh, the, the rates of, obviously, women entering those contact-based sports is, is huge, which is awesome. But as we saw in the AFLW this year, I think they had like twelve ACLs in the first four weeks. So it's it's a very large problem at the moment. And then there's a lot of obviously really smart people within the AFL system that are trying to kind of overcome it. Some of the things that have come out in the or people have written about or or that we've seen is that most people most of the women's AFL athletes at the community level or at the elite AFLW level don't really have that much experience in afl particularly in their youth and a lot of them across coders which i think makes a, an absolutely massive difference if you've got obviously a lot of the young guys are kicking around the footy since they're four five six years old in kick, and and then but in the women's space we have a lot of people just coming across to the sport now and without that prior exposure to the sport they just lack the the movement patterns and the the neuromuscular control to control such a dynamic sport particularly the afl it's a 360 degree game you've got um, skills by hand skills by foot you've got contact you've got um, jump and land um, uh, cutting you've got high speed sprinting so it's a, a very very dynamic sport which puts huge demands on the body which a lot of the cross coders or people who are just coming into the sport is is really taxing on their on their body i think some of the other things particularly a lot of them have come in with short pre so it doesn't give them a lot of opportunity to work on their, on their skills and their movement patterns, and they're coming straight into games, which can put them at risk. There is some contention about the movement patterns in terms of females, in terms of how much that is due to their genetics as, as females, and how much is due to that of just having a low training age we meet most young females and their gym based strength training experience, which we know has a massive role in someone's injury risk. Their years of their training age, their years of training is in terms of gym based environment is very low compared to getting an 18 year old guy in there. You know, they've probably been in the gym for at least the last three or four years. So just purely from a training age perspective, I think that has a lot to do with it as well.
0: Yeah. And, you know, with, I guess that's maybe something, would you say you focus on more of, um, I, and so like, I guess for screening first, do you do anything screening-wise initially for the season? And I guess, would you say since the, it's been kind of undetermined in the argument of, is it more of you know the genetics and biological makeup of them, or is it their, um, their movement patterns and their strength and their exposure to the sport? Would you say you focus on more of just really trying to work on the exposure and the movement patterns and strengthening, and then that's the main focus and not worrying too much about oh i mean her you know she has wide hips so her q angle is a little bit bigger type of thing and, and so on like that or yeah. combination we haven't we haven't done any specific screening with our environment in
1: our in our clubs but from a from a research perspective i don't think there's not a great deal to support it from an individual level definitely prior injury plays a big role obviously anyone that's had a prior ACL injury is going to be at increased risk, and then with the jump and land stuff, there is some evidence that looking at their their landing control does influence their risk. Kind of going forward, um, you'll know if someone has poor uh, landing technique. It doesn't have to be to anything technical, and if you land and it just looks wrong and it just looks gross, then you're probably going to be a little bit concerned about them. But nonetheless, no matter what, you're going to imply. Uh, going to kind of uh, give out any injury reduction, risk reduction kind of programs at a group level regardless. So you're always going to be targeting the exercise at the appropriate level for the person, but everybody's going to be performing strength training. Everybody's going to be doing some form of plyometrics um, and everybody should be doing some kind of movement retraining. And that's the when I was looking into a bit because we did a program with um, the Queensland we've got a Queensland government grant to do a, a injury reduction program for touch football. So I was looking across all of the injury injury prevention programs across whether it's soccer or, or AFL or uh, um, some of uh, netball knees, some of the other ones as well, that they all include some kind of uh, strength component. They all include some kind of plyometric component. And the newer ones now are also trying to include some kind of movement retraining. And I think the prep to play for... For AFL women in particular, has done a really good job of that in terms of providing resources to coaches to uh, to actually talk to their their athletes about change of direction technique, jump and land technique, uh, tackling technique, how to deal with contact, all those kind of things, which has a flow and effect to to their injury risk.
0: Okay, and with with those programs and the things you found in the current research out there, do you think any of anything you found is probably some of the most important things to work on um, or things you've done with the AFL team that you've tried to help do to, you know, like train the movement patterns, train their strength to help decrease the risk as much as possible if you can?
1: Yeah. the Again, it comes back to the ACL stuff we were talking about before in terms of adherence and compliance because we know that with a simple injury reduction program, which is just basic strength exercises, some plyometrics and some uh, change of direction and agility retraining, for as little as 15 minutes twice a week, the risk of AC injury is reduced by 50%. So it's a massive reduction. But as soon as you don't do it twice per week, then the benefits just disappear. So it's not a big time commitment. Uh, but it's making sure that whether it's the strength and conditioning staff at clubs are appropriately aware and trained that they can implement it at the start of trainings um, or in their in their other times that they got with the athletes and that obviously the coaching staff are on board that this is a non-negotiable for our team and, and we have to do this whether it's at the start or end of training uh, or in their other scheduled sessions for to actually maximize the reduction in the in the risk as well and i think it, it's really good to do it as a team and have everybody doing it together because again you can it's easy enough oh you have to do this in your spare time but you can bet your bottom dollar that most of it's not going
0: to get done <laughs> definitely and yeah that's i mean that's a crazy statistic of only 15 minutes twice a week it is so it doesn't matter necessarily when it can be before or after on an off day and they haven't really determined that as long as it's just the consistency of doing it that they've they've shown it has great benefit correct
1: i would rather have an ath- a weaker athletes that can uh not as strong athletes I say that's not as uh that's actively performing an injury reduction program or a strength training program than an equally a strong athlete that's not, or a stronger athlete that's not actively performing in something, something's about actively performing in that kind of program that just helps the neuromuscular system stay on on top of anything. And there was a study done in the in the FIFA on the FIFA Eleven Plus because um, there was c- concerns about that program taking too long for coaches to perform poor, uh, before training so that they performed the strength training portion of that or the strength exercises portion of that program after training and that still had the same benefits of, uh, in terms of injury re- risk reduction. So if you can use your warm-up to not just warm up the body but use it tactically to improve your physical qualities, and then, if you need to finish off the strength training stuff, or do the strength training session after training or at another time, then it's still going to have the same benefits as otherwise.
0: Definitely. So, incorporating that stuff in warm up in the warm up will be like a massive benefit if if that's if you can figure out how to do that with, with the coaches and SNC and so on. Um, I guess moving on to so that was kind of the more if there's anything risk reduction to identify. I guess we'll move on to more of what you do with performance GC in your kind of later stage rehab type stuff. So I guess if you just want to give a general overview um, of your goals, and I know you talked about the purpose of you know having that frequency, but kind of more again of the specifics of you know more your t- sets reps type stuff. I guess not necessarily the exact sets and reps, but I guess just the the, the main goal of it um, of performance GC.
1: Yeah, for sure. We we do, a for the late stage stuff, we do a gym session once per week. We do a field session once per week as well, who are that supervised. And then we provide them with a home program for them to do um, another gym-based program in their own time. And then some other conditioning to do in their, their own time as well. In terms of the gym-based session, we kind of split it up into three components. We just have a, a general kind of movement technique slash kind of movement control activation section at the start then we move into more of a, a jump and land plyometric section through the middle and then we finish the session with some strength training at the end then in the in the field-based sessions uh similar at the start with you know we want to do some warm-ups and mobility stuff work through um some some drills technique-based drills um some kind of low-level plyometric drills then we move into Kind of uh, isolated section where we look at some key movements such as uh, shuffling, um, retreating, or hip turning, backpedaling, and then uh, uh, a linear sprinting, straight line acceleration component as well. And then we finish at the end with a uh, a just a pure kind of cutting, change of direction, change of direction, agility section at the end where we're just trying to uh, build up some obviously physical competency and and some volume in terms of their cutting and change of direction and then a tiny little bit at the end of the session where we can actually work on some conditioning and just uh, work on their fitness a little bit because the deconditioning after the surgery is is also massive
0: perfect we'll get into those in a second but i guess just for to go back a little bit is you said this is generally around that six to twelve month frame Um, if so what would you want the athletes to have achieved before starting this program with you uh, with, like with your, your testing, um, range of motion, strength, et cetera.
1: Yeah, we have a, a few basic uh, criteria that are not, are not too complicated. Basically, we want them to be able to run and run well particularly in a straight line, and it started some some easy kind of change direction, S running, those kind of things, just to make sure that they've actually, their knee has the ability to tolerate the demands of the field sessions. So if they can run well, that gives us a good idea, and they're not having any, any stiffness or pain after they're, they're going for running, it gives us a good idea that they're going to tolerate the, the late stage of rehabilitation pretty well. Same applies from the gym-based environment. If you've started some, uh, some low-level jumping and you're your strength training you're getting quite heavy in the gym you're tolerating that well your knees not reacting Um, you're going to tolerate the gym sessions quite well as well from a more kind of clinical based perspective hopefully they're they're getting around 70 to 80 percent kind of limb symmetry uh, ideally closer to 80 in whether it's quads hams, and hop tests as well Um, a couple of different hop tests the basic hop tests of um, just a single hop and a triple hop and uh and then some handheld dyno kind of hamstring and quads to to get a bit of an idea of where their physical kind of capacity is before they kind of get going
0: okay and so then once they have those and they start you kind of talked about initially in those in that gym based one of having uh, i guess kind of a the the setup is more of your activation plyo and strength do you maybe just want to go through a little bit i guess like first off off explaining your activation um part of that and what the main goal of that is
1: yeah we just want to start to work do a little bit of technique so so we just use some some wall drills there which i think carries over really well to their running particularly with the younger teenage guys they often are not really sure how to run well or accelerate well so a lot of the wall drills based stuff work really well we also do some uh, tall to short landings or toe drops uh, those kind of things at the start of the session which helps to just wake up the neuromuscular system a bit and get them ready for the for the second part of the section session and then uh, at the start we just do some kind of lateral hip stuff um whereas crab walk variations working on their triple extension with their crab walk those kind of things to just start to warm up them up through the through the hips and and those kind of key stabilizers it sets them up well for the rest of the session but um and then carries wells through from a already working on the technique perspective at the start um so that when it, it comes, comes to, to their it. other stuff they're, they're going pretty
0: well yeah so having that kind of carryover of technique and getting the neuromuscular system ready to go yeah, exactly. um, on to the next things i guess for the the plyo aspect of it what, is, what are your main focuses um for for the acl athlete on, on that section so acl is we we break it up into three sections we do
1: a a section on lateral plyos, so a lot of Hayden-based or or skater jump variations um, and progressing them from a kind of a low level up to more of an advanced level um, as obviously the duration of the rehab goes on. And we have another little section more on kind of the fast stretch shortening cycle, so kind of ground contacts below 0.3, 0.25 of a second because we know that really fast plyometric ability um, is really important for change of direction and, and sporting based movements so we have a little section based on that which is um more your short ground contact times um lower amplitude jump so you're not jumping as high but you're trying to get nice and quick off the ground and then we have more of our kind of slower uh landing or slower or slow stretch shortening cycle section which is more of using um things like box jumps and, and depth jumps where the ground contact time is a little bit longer, but we're hitting that kind of quality from an athletic perspective as well.
0: Guess okay, so just um, kind of trying to go across the board and getting um, expose, exposing them to as many different factors to get them ready for whatever kind of comes away within sport.
1: Yeah, obviously ACL largely being a lateral-based injury, then that lateral plyometric ability is really important, and then the being able to change direction quick Short ground contact times is really important, but then you've got AFL people, rugby people that are jumping up trying to mark the ball, and they also need to be able to land from a jump and stabilize well as well. So we want to try and link that, we're trying to link it back to the ACL mechanism in
0: the first place as well. Definitely. I guess to finish up that kind of more of the strength session, what would you say your main focus is strength-wise um, for the athlete is going to be?
1: We'll try and hit each of the key movement patterns, so a squat, hinge, um Uh, lunge and then a lateral strength as well i I guess that's something we put in there quite early and we want to try and push a bit as well that often isn't done so lateral lunge variations and and those kind of things that can develop a bit more strength in the frontal plane Uh, and so they'll do some of those key movement patterns with us and then they'll do some of the key movement patterns in their home program as well as some isolated stuff as well because we know with the ACL unless you do some isolated strength then if they just perform compound movements then the individual deficits they've got when their muscles won't continue to improve they'll just recruit their their hammies and their, and their glutes in particular and offload the quad. It's the same with we're always steering towards single leg-based movements because again even subconsciously it's been shown that they'll offload onto the other side so we want the key movement patterns we want it to be dominated by single leg base movements and whether it's step-ups lunges split squats bulgarian split squats those kind of exercises and then we want it some isolated strength training as well whether it's um, whether it's hammy curls knee extensions uh, to get the isolated strength in as well and and calf raises as well calf being almost the most important muscle for change of direction performance so we put a big focus on the calf and the soleus is a is a big restraint to um anterior tibial translational strain on the acl so we want to make sure that we're hitting the calf complex as well
0: Mm, so yeah definitely getting those compound um movements in uh, the main movement patterns but then like i mean i think that's a good point or something i didn't realize as much as having those isolated ones in there as well so they don't would you say so they don't so they can get that I guess muscle working specifically strengthen that up and don't comp- compensate. So then they're not getting the correct benefit that you want out of the movement.
1: Yeah, exactly. if the The changes in their movement patterns and how they use their leg happens really early in ACL. So the we want to keep working on their particularly their isolated quad strength for as much as possible. Based on the theory that if we can isolate that and build the strength back up then they'll reduce their compensations when they're actually performing functional tasks we still like to have a, a main compound lift in there whether that's a, um, a squat or a deadlift to build because they're just such great strength building exercises but then it's obviously supported by the other accessory lifts and then the other isolated muscle group lifts um, exercises as well
0: mm-hmm I guess I, I really want to get into your field-based sessions as well, since you put um, you said um, talked about how those were so important. Um, so I guess maybe we'll go through the different aspects that you talked about and main things to focus on for for when rehabbing ACLs. So I guess we'll start with just like a linear linear run or linear sprint. What are your, what would you say the main focuses that you want to look at technique wise are for athletes um, during that?
1: Trent. obviously no one injures their acl running in a straight line um so it's not too much from an acl injury perspective a lot of people feel like they lose a lot of their speed after acl they're just not as quick and and they just lack that kind of top end so we're putting it in there mainly from that perspective to try and get them used to running fast again and there's obviously heaps of Kind of physical adaptations that can come along with sprinting as well, particularly here in Australia, where most people are getting a hamstring graft, and we want to use sprinting as a means to condition the hamstrings for when they go back to sport to make sure they're not going having any ongoing troubles from that area uh, as well. Uh, So, uh, it's nothing generally we just want them to be able to sprint well and with good acceleration mm-hmm. technique i don't think there's anything really specific from an acl perspective specifically rating relating to the acl that you want to worry about but a lot of them particularly those initial few steps feel really slow pushing off their affected leg which will increase with mainly the gym based kind of training there as well but we can put them in starting positions that, with that initial kind of starting speed off the off the line, where they're really trying to push through their affected leg, is probably um, something that we try to do a bit, so that they're not just get used to getting all the drive from that other side.
0: Okay, so the hamstring graph, and then getting those initial first steps for yeah. for the um, main focuses on that. I guess so. I guess more of the ACL related ones in technique work. Starting with shuffling, you mentioned you do that. What are your main focuses, focal points on shuffling to, and technique on that?
1: Shuffling there's a, uh, depending on the sport, some other sports do a lot more shuffling or in close work than, than others. So it's important quality to measure. I think it carries a lot of the shuffling technique can carry over to the change of direction stuff um, as, as well. But the main things we look for there is We use the cue just to stay in the tunnel, so they stay reasonably low. We know that the ACL gets ruptured when your leg is in 30 degrees of flexion or less. So usually if they're staying a little bit lower, then they're less likely to do a sudden plant out to the side with their knee in a relatively straight position. The other main thing is we really want their foot pointing straight ahead. So if their foot's pointing straight ahead, then their knee's much less likely to dive down into a, a valgus uh, base position, so we really focus on curing them to stay a little bit low, keep their foot pointing straight ahead, as if they're on on train tracks. And then coming in and out of the cut, we want them to be nice and quick, and really use their inside leg to drive out of the to drive out of the cut. Um, without being too weighty on their on their outside legs. So if they can do what's called more of a speed cut where they're using both of their legs in a little bit more of a split stance position to drive out rather than a really heavy kind of plant step when you're doing the shuffling-based movements. Oh, the the last thing is probably the most important is trunk position. So as soon as the trunk starts to laterally flex and, and rotate in the opposite direction of your intended travel, then that puts the knee in a really vulnerable position to to go into that quick valgus position and and hurt your acl
0: okay so and then when you're saying pushing off and keeping that uh, kind of like a speed cut in the shuffling you'd say if you're going left you want more of the weight on your left foot and pushing off with that one yeah when you're at slow speed
1: and you're just kind of in close quarters with an opponent you can stay at a slow speed and react your feet quickly and you can get a lot more push off your inside leg to to drive the cut instead of just throwing a, a leg out wide
0: okay and then kind of go into that the cutting side off of shuffling you would you say is that more like kind of a crossover step into that would you push over push off your inside leg kind of into the crossover step is that what you're wanting on the change direction with the
1: change direction it, it there was a, a
0: good article i can't remember
1: the author now but there was a good article that detailed kind of three different types of cut and that's what we're trying to focus towards It just makes things quite simple for the participants in terms of uh, more of a, um, there's the the plant step, which is the traditional change direction. You're going quite fast and you put a leg out to the side and just plant and and go the other way. Then there's the speed cut, which is more of the, where you've got a, a bit more of a split step kind of cut and pushing out to the side. And then there is a bit more of a crossover cut, which is where you're moving at really fast speed with a low degree of change direction where um, there's not a definitive plant step, but you're almost kind of crossing over the legs there a little bit, and moving, running in more of a more of an arc or a, just a small subtle change of direction. So, if you can change the speed of the cut, so low speed into a change of direction, and, and then running off, then you're more likely a speed cut. If you kind of need to a pretty heavy D-cell cell. And then a sharper cut, you're more likely to use more of a plan step. And then if you're running at a, a fast speed or a curved run, or just with a subtle change of direction, you're more likely to lose that little bit more of a, a crossover cut. So we can manipulate the drills a little bit to make sure we train the different components of cutting.
0: Okay. How, uh, how hard would you say it is to get this ingrained in the brains where they do it naturally within the sporting setting do you find that they they carry over it carries over pretty well and they, and they do it or depending on the age is gonna make it a little bit harder the older they are to to do something like this i think i think it absolutely can carry over
1: they're probably mm-hmm. they're going to obviously they're going to get in compromising positions within the within the games, but if they can reduce the number of exposures to those compromising positions, then we should be able to reduce their risk. And we see definite improvement where people don't even know where their feet are at the start of the 10 weeks, and then after 10 weeks, they're performing the movements really well, even in a reactive um, situation where they're reacting to an appointment or whether it's our call or a, or a cone or or um, to a ball or a play or something, we see them execute the, execute the movement. But I have no doubt whatsoever that they would still obviously not do the optimal within a game but if more often than not they're they're doing a better movement pattern then we should be able to reduce their likelihood of of obviously Mm re-injuring
0: that's built up with the consistency of of your program of doing it week and week out um and that's probably the benefit of that would you say
1: yeah i think it's with every motor skill whether it's a a skill-based sporting movement of you know tennis or hitting or you know cricket or or shooting a basketball whether it's those Mm -hmm. more traditional skill-based movements or the skills of of changing direction i think it's the same thing obviously the more you practice then the more it gets ingrained and it becomes a bit more autonomous
0: Mm. i guess one last question what would you say or i guess how do you guys have it set up at performance gc and why you've chosen kind of your the tests to monitor and progress the athlete's um, and then, do you have anything specific you do extra when you're like when you determine that they're ready to start going back to practices and or games? Yep,
1: we we want we at the start of our program we do a full testing suite of some um, field tests and the gym based tests and then at the end we do a full testing session, uh, repeating the ones they did at the start so we get a really good idea of how they've progressed and then we can use those tests to. Uh, to then inform where they're at in terms of returning back to training where we keep in based on how they're going during the sessions we'll keep talking to them and saying all right i think you're ready to start some non-contact training because the sooner you can get someone training and being back in their sporting environment the the better you know you can do a lot of your skill based um work on your sport based skills really early you work on your fitness really early then you can work back into some non-contact drills um, then working back into more some reactive stuff, and then um, then your contact-based training after that. So we can use our testing battery, which is a combination of strength, uh, hopping tests, uh, uh, field tests, um, and uh, some psychological, obviously, and patient-reported outcome questionnaires as well to inform how they're going. In reality, the passing the return-to-sport assessment is really just a a test to say that you can return back to training full training safely and we always want them to perform at least four if not six weeks of full training like a pre-season before they go back to their their sport
0: definitely do you have any tests that you think are the most like kind of ones that you would definitely make sure to include in every kind of end stage um, testing battery or is it just is it based more on how you kind of combine it all and use it together
1: all the information builds a much stronger picture but for sure the ones that we see consistently struggle with is your quads which is an isolated quads test we use a a kind of an inline pull dynamometer to assess that um, because we know if we assess it with other means i think leg extension is a little bit tricky and if we just do it with based on single leg squat or leg press or something then it's not going to pick up the deficits in the isolated quads so that's a big one The other one I think which is underappreciated is the vertical hop. There was some good research coming out of Aspitar over the course of this year, looking at the difference between the horizontal hops of single hop, triple hop, triple crossover, those kind of hops versus the vertical hop. And they looked at the forces which contribute to those tests. And with the more horizontal based hops, you get a lot of power from the hip and the ankle. And the knee actually doesn't contribute much to those tests. So we're kind of getting a bit of a false alignment. And people will pass, and we've found this definitely, that people will pass those more traditional hop tests relatively quickly. But as soon as we go into a vertical hop where the force generation is a little bit more distributed evenly between the hip, the knee, and the ankle, we'll often pick up a lot more deficits with the vertical hop than we would with some of the horizontal ones so i think that's often underused and then some kind of reactive strengthening test or or drop jump to look at their reactives uh reactive strength as well as often shows up some big deficits as well as a psychological measure like an acl rsi or something that i think is important as well
0: perfect well thank you very much adam for being on and all the information on on the episode Uh, I guess if you just want to give, um, share out where people can follow you with Performance GC or if you share any other content or where they can get in touch with you um, if they want to schedule an appointment or join the group.
1: Yeah, I'm more than happy for people to get in touch. Even if they've just got a question, that's fine. They can always email uh, me at performancegoldcoast at gmail.com. So that was performancegoldcoast at gmail.com if you want to just keep an eye on content and things i'm obviously being a phd student i put out a lot of the kind of acl based research and trying to link that into what your and your recovery on our instagram at performance uh, underscore gc so i think they're probably the two main places and and naturally working not just within the the group stuff with performance gc but working clinically across a few practices as well so that we can get people in pretty early after their ACL reconstruction and take them down the line or whether it's other sporting-based injuries as well. Obviously, we service them also.
0: Awesome. Thank you very much again.
1: No problem at all, Patrick. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to No Weak Links. If you've enjoyed the show and would be able to leave a five-star review on iTunes, that would be much appreciated as it would help the show reach more people. I also provide free strength and conditioning and injury and rehabilitation content on Instagram at Coach Patrick Wood, on Facebook at Coach Patrick Wood, on Twitter at Coach Patty Wood, and on my website www.patrick wood.com. All of this can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening.